And uh, I brought three books down there, fully expecting to read a little bit out of each. And I can tell you, I'm proud to report that I read exactly zero pages while in Florida. And it's funny because, like, this time last year we went and I read the entire, uh, it was Two Towers from Lord of the Rings. I read the entire book while we were down there, 300-some pages. And uh, this year I didn't read a thing. And there was one key difference. Uh, This time we had a toddler with us, a 20-month-old boy. And mind you, we haven't had him for 20 months. We've had him for three months because we adopted. So, uh... Uh, I don't have to tell you guys, that's a game changer. So yes, I did very little reading, zilch actually reading when I was down there. But how many of you guys pack books for vacations? You're avid readers. You like to read when you can escape because sometimes, man, the daily grind is just hard to find time for that. So to get our minds going for all you readers out there, just towards what we're speaking about tonight, what's your favorite section at the bookstore? There's so many of them. There's travel, historical fiction, sports, autobiographies, Christian, Christian fiction, right? Every Everything you could think of. Teen paranormal romance. We'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, what's your favorite section at the bookstore, Mike? Sci-fi? I heard historical fiction, Kathleen. That's a good one. Murder mysteries. Mermaid mysteries. I don't think that's one. Wayne. (laughs) History. Science and technology from a science buff. Katie. Fantasy. Anybody else? Graphic novels, yes, I'm a fan. Well, I know recently I saw a guy who went into Barnes and Noble, and he put labels for the sections over the accurate labels for the sections. So I'll show you. Like here, instead of nature uh, books, it says animals I want to wrestle next to a snake book, a wolf's book, and an owl's book. And elsewhere, he put um, anxiety-inducing books next to paying for college and living debt-free. And then this one's my favorite. He put dudes who lost their shirts next to all the romance novels because nobody on the cover of a romance novel is wearing their shirt. So it's funny because I used to, I talk about Barnes & Noble, I used to live in Barnes & Noble. Almost literally, my living situation when I graduated college was a a room with the size of, it's basically the size of a twin bed. I could barely stand up in there. So I lived at Barnes & Noble, and for somebody who just graduated as an English major, that wasn't a punishment for me. Like, I enjoyed that. It was a nice escape. They had a cafe, everything. So that was my jam. That's where I spent my time. And again, I can remember when I first saw teen paranormal romance was a section in the bookstore. And I was like, what on earth? Because it wasn't just a couple books. It was like an entirely huge, lengthy shelf next to the kids area. I'm like, what is this all about? And it was, that was the, the heyday of Twilight. And uh, all the Twilight spinoffs and all the other books that imitated that. And, and really, I might have raised my eyebrows, but it's no new genre. Like, I, I finally saw the new Beauty and the Beast. And you think Beauty and the Beast, that's some weird paranormal romance that's going on there. And again, I finally saw the movie. So not to, not to ruin the plot, but the whole plot kind of hinges on books. Like, she's like, I would rather starve than eat with you. And then five minutes later, she's like, oh, you know Shakespeare? Oh, this is your library? When's dinner, right? And this, all of a sudden, she sees the books and sparks fly. It's kind of how I, you know, scored Steph. She was like, oh, you're an English major. I love books. No, she's shaking her head walking down the aisle because she's always on our HGTV. She's like, you know how much space we could free up if you got rid of one of these shelves of books? You know what we could do with this room? But I got a quote I'm going to share with you, and I'm gonna, you'll hear it next time you tell me to get rid of books. It's by the theologian Scott Swain. He says, because scripture is the supreme locus of God's self-communication in the world, Christians are people of the book. 
by nature, were people of the book. But he's not just talking any book. He's specifically talking here is speaking of the Bible. Yet it's funny because if we're people of the book, we're people of the Bible, you survey most churches and people in churches, we're not reading it. Uh, there was a LifeWay survey this year, I believe Anthony referenced it in his sermon from a couple months ago, where they surveyed thousands and thousands of people that attend church about their reading of the Bible. And 90% of them said, I want to honor God in everything I do. I don't know what the other 10% said, but 90% said, I want to honor God in everything I do. But only 19% said that they read the Bible daily. 18% said, I don't read the Bible ever. About a quarter of the people surveyed said, I read the Bible about once a month, and everybody else kind of fell in this every other week or every now and again kind of pattern with reading Scripture. You know, there's a, a quote by uh, Charles Spurgeon. He once said, um, there's enough dust on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. It's kind of intense, but it gets the point across, right? <laughs> because God gets painted by, by so many as reclusive or, or he's hidden or, or he's hard to find or he's secretive. But those that think God doesn't want to be found are usually the people that can't find their Bibles because God speaks through his word. Never mistake your numbness for his absence or your indifference for his silence because God speaks through his word. And the question I would ask tonight is the reason we don't go to his word as much as we should is it because we need to rethink it. Like the man in Barnes and Noble, have we thought about it and classified it in a way that's inaccurate? Because scholars say that we create meaning, that we become co-authors when we open up a new book. Anytime we read something, we begin to inject our feelings or our perspectives into it. And that would mean the perspective that we go into the Bible with may very well determine what we get out of it. So how do we classify the Bible in our minds? You know, some people will never approach the Bible because in their mind, the Bible's fantasy. I mean, you, there's a Savior that comes through a virgin birth, walks on water, turns water into wine, and then himself, he's killed, crucified, buried, and raises himself from the grave. And that's just the Gospels. <laughs> but the rest of the Bible all hinges on whether that really happened. And for a lot of folks in our culture, it, it's odd to them that well-adjusted adults would think that that actually happened. They might say, well, it's, it's cool that you base your life and your faith on this book, but can you at least admit that it's fiction or fantasy? Now, if you're here tonight, you're probably not in that crowd. But if you've wrestled with those doubts, if you've wrestled with, man, why trust the Bible? Man, I just want to recommend we're not going to dive into apologetics or defending the authorship or what became canon or different copies or translations, but there's a great book. It's by Greg Gilbert. It's called Why Trust the Bible. It's like barely 100 pages, but it's very exhaustive. And look, it's so tiny. You could read this on a, on a three or four day vacation in Florida. But if you've ever wrestled with those questions, you've ever wrestled with uh, why trust the Bible, that's a great resource, again, by Greg Gilbert. But I do want to look at, again, this idea of fantasy. Because fantasy is this escape to another reality or world or universe. And we see it in books, but we also see it in entertainment. We see it in, even in video games. But one place you definitely see it is where my wife and Raj and I went this past week, which is Disney World. You know, like, I'm trying to think of this stretch when I was a kid. Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King. That stretch of four movies 
define my childhood. And depending on your generation, the stretch might be different. But since Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in 1937, they've just been on a roll pumping out these happily ever after fairy tales for each generation. And it's powerful. Because not only have they been doing that, but even recently they've bought the, the rights to the Marvel Universe, right? Marvel Comics and, and Star Wars. They're relaunching Spider-Man. They're uh, putting, uh, putting out standalone Star Wars movies. I even heard they're doing a crossover and I found some of the concept art. And uh, this is it right here. It's, uh, what is it, Iron Droid. No, it's, it's not. But uh, each one of these series... From the Marvel Universe to Star Wars to Disney, it's this escape into another realm, another reality. And when you go to Disney World, they make it so you can literally step into it. Like Avatar was a movie that was made almost seven years ago now that grossed over $2 billion. And ever since then, they've been struggling to produce the sequel for Hollywood. But Disney from day one was like, all right, we're going to build, quote unquote, Pandora, this world from that movie in Disney World so people could have what they call immersive entertainment. It's what they call an interactive, all-encompassing world that swallows up the participant. But what about after when that world swallows you up and it spits you back out from fantasy back to reality? What about finding meaning when the show or the book or the movie is over? There was something classified, literally classified as avatar depression syndrome which happened after the movie came out, where entire forums were dedicated to dealing with the depression of returning from that movie and that fantasy back to reality. There was a thread entitled Ways to Cope with the Depression of the Dream of Pandora Being Intangible. And in this thread, somebody wrote, when I woke up this morning after watching Avatar for the first time yesterday, the world seemed gray. It was like my whole life, everything I've done and worked for lost its meaning. It just seemed so meaningless. I still don't really see any reason to keep doing things at all. I live in a dying world. That's written by somebody who saw this movie. It's because fantasy, it does remind us that we're made for something more than the reality we see with just our five senses day to day. It's like the C.S. Lewis quote. Maybe it's, it calls it to mind for you where he says, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If you were to Google that statement and, and look into that statement as I did this week, if you look up, I'm not made for this world, on Google, then what I found is, is not that quote, but all of the top, um, all the top findings on Google were conversations, depressed conversations, suicidal conversations, but I w- I'm not made for this world, so what's the purpose of living? What's the point? Well, what's interesting is this idea that we're not made for this world. It's not something that the Bible toes around, but it, it addresses it head on. In Hebrews 13, 14, it says, this world is not our home. We're looking forward to our everlasting home in heaven. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has planted eternity in the human heart. Like the author of Ecclesiastes, we see people either trying to find meaning in this world and this reality or all out escape from it. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we see him do that through embracing work, embracing pleasure, embracing wisdom. But ultimately, he finds, like the person in this forum said about returning from Avatar, it's meaningless. He uses that word 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes based on different translations. And we'll find the the same outside of God. And that's why we see people, whether it's it's, uh, going to drug use or going to the movies, we try to find ways to escape reality. So the question is, what are we doing when we pick up the Bible? 
Is that meant to be an escape or, or is it actually meant to help us embrace reality? And I would say tonight that the Bible isn't there to help us escape reality, but to help us embrace it. In all of its peaks and valleys, in all of its highs and lows, in all of its raw moments and real experiences that, that might be rough, where other religions often make it a goal to escape suffering or, or, or get out of this reality, Christianity helps us walk through it, helps us embrace it and find hope in it. So many people take suffering as a, as a knock on the existence of God or try to disprove God because suffering exists. But the problem of suffering and tragedy and injustice and things not always ending happily ever after is a problem for everyone, the unbeliever and the believer alike. And abandoning a belief in God doesn't make pain or suffering any easier. Tim Keller addressed this in his book, Prodigal God. He says this, that Karl Marx and others have charged that religion is the opiate of the masses. That is, it is a sedative that makes people passive toward injustice because there will be pie in the sky by and by. That may be true of some religions that teach people that this material world is unimportant. Christianity, however, teaches that God hates the suffering and oppression of this material world so much he's willing to get involved in it and to fight against it. Properly understood, Christianity is by no means the opiate of the people. It's more like the smelling salts. I love that quote. Properly understood, Christianity is by no means the opiate of the people. It's more like the smelling salts because it awakens us to reality and then helps us to embrace reality. Because the Bible is not just a collection of myths and philosophical musings and fables. It's saying that, hey, something concrete and real has happened. Something extraordinary has happened in history that changes our present reality. And it reminds us of the reality we don't see. And it helps us water and find the fruit of the eternity that God has planted in our hearts. It helps us to do all that. So I believe sometimes we as believers will classify the Bible as self-help. Like, like it helps us. You might have heard people call the Bible God's rule book or, or, or God's roadmap that he gives believers or God's guide for a holy life or how to live. And it does all those things. But when we strip it down to just that, that it, it, it's self-help and nothing more, we've basically turned it into Oprah or Dr. Phil, where we focus on what we're doing, how we're doing it wrong, and how we should be doing it. And the goal ultimately becomes our own advancement, our own peace of mind, rather than the advancement of the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 35, Jesus says, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Follow me, and I'll show you. Self-help is no help at all. See, when we make the Bible about us and solely about what we're doing and how we can do it better, we're casually saying that God exists for us rather than we exist for God. You know, Proverbs 16.4 puts it pretty bluntly. It says, the Lord has made everything for his own purposes. The Lord has made everything for his own purposes. Matter of fact, it even says in Psalm 23, he leads us on paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake, right? For his purposes. Neighboring that in the Old Testament, David says in Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verse 97, he says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. What was he meditating on? Not some of our favorite passages like Romans 8 or, or verses out of the gospel or Psalm 23. No, he was meditating on the, the actual law. 
Some of us would raise our eyebrows and think, yeah, right. Nobody, like, celebrates the rule book, but this is what David says he's doing. And I think it's because he realizes the law, it, it paints a portrait of, of who God is, of how he thinks, of, of who he is, that the Bible, God's law, the scripture he gives to us is not so much self-help as it is an autobiography. This is who I am. This is how holy I am, how righteous I am. You know, many of the words the Bible uses to describe the law, it uses in other places those exact same words to describe God. For instance, good, holy, just, true, perfect, not burdensome, light, love, righteous, pure, spiritual, unchangeable, and eternal. That's just to name a few. Where the Bible uses the same word for God's laws it does for God because it shows us who God is. It's less self-help and it's more an autobiography. God revealing, hey, this is my heart. This is how I think. This is how I operate. This is how I'm holy. This is how I'm righteous. But it's very clear in Scripture that Christians are called to become godly. And in keeping his laws, we're not going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make ourselves good enough. The Bible, the gospel is clear. We, that's only made possible by the cross to achieve that. But as we follow God's law, we'll find ourselves looking more and more like him because it's God's law that describes just who he is. But you look at scripture, man, the Pharisees, the people of Jesus' day, the religious elite of Jesus' day, they took these laws and they asked, okay, how do I improve myself through these and make myself worthy for God? They took something that was supposed to paint a picture of the character of God, and, and they made it this self-help 600 and some step program because there were 600 plus laws they tried to obey to personal holiness. And really, it, it's never ended, us trying to find a way on our own in the book, Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren speaks of Dr. Hugh Moorhead. He was a philosophy professor at Northeastern Illinois University. He once wrote to 250 of the best-known philosophers, scientists, writers, and intellectuals in the world. And he asked them, what is the meaning of life? He then published their responses in a book. Some offered their best guesses. Some admitted that they had just made up a purpose for life. And others were honest enough to say that they were clueless. In fact, a number of famous intellectuals asked Professor Moorhead to write back and tell them if he discovered the purpose for life. On even the brightest minds of our day, we can only speculate about these things, but the Bible ends that speculation because it gives us revelation. It gives us revelation. So the question is, what is it revealing? What is this revelation? Now, revelation means to unveil. To take something we couldn't see and, and, and that we couldn't see before and, and make it visible to us. And we see that the Bible is not revealing a 10-step plan to our holiness, but it's revealing the one truly holy and righteous one, Jesus Christ. You go to the book of Revelation. The first five words of the book of Revelation are the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. And you look at the Bible as a whole. That's what it's all about. Jesus himself taught that the Bible is first and foremost about himself and about God. It's not self-help. It's God revealing itself. It's like him writing his autobiography in Luke 24 through 20, or excuse me, chapter 24, verse 27. Jesus was talking to the disciples, and it says he started at the beginning with the book of Moses, and he went on through all the prophets, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to him. All of scriptures. Scripture is not meant to be treated selectively. It's so funny that so often we throw out the Old Testament and just read the New when that's all Jesus had. 
the Old Testament. That's the Bible Jesus read. In the Old Testament, there's 2,000 prophecies that are fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And we find that, again, the Bible, it isn't just for self-help. It's for finding our help in Jesus. Does it help us along? Yes. But truly, it's about finding our hope and finding our help in Jesus Christ because he is the only hope. John 5, 39, Jesus says, you diligently study the scriptures, speaking to the Pharisees, because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. The message version of that same passage says, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am, standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. These leaders believe that studying the Old Testament, that in that they'd find ways to help themselves. Some of them memorized the entire thing. (laughs) They had known it by heart, and they still missed what it pointed to. It pointed to Jesus Christ. Again, the Bible is less self-help and more this, this profile God is giving us of his holiness and who he is. And when we approach the Bible, we're not approaching just philosophy. We're not just approaching good teaching, but we're approaching God himself. We're approaching his living word. Even his laws, they they give his profile and they show his character. The narratives show his hand in history and they show his heart towards his people. His shadow, his imprint, his wake is throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture. The question is, okay, so how does this change how we read the Bible tomorrow? How does this change how we read the Bible next week, next month? How do we apply this? And the first is, is as we looked, if the Bible, it's not an escape from reality, but it helps us embrace reality, then we should read with an expectation for application. That when we open the Bible, we should expect that it's going to speak to us. I think sometimes we think, well, it's a, a book that was written for a people long ago, or it's a book that's written for a people that's further along in their faith than I am, or I'm in such a, a weird uh, circumstance, I'm off on an island, it's not going to be able to speak to me. But, man, if it deals with reality, then it can deal with real-life situations. And nothing is outside of its grasp. And 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us. Me and you, what is true, and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. The Bible deals with reality, then, man, it's for real people. It's for me, it's for you, it's for everyday people. It's relevant and it's useful, as it says in the scripture, for every situation. Again, the Bible doesn't tiptoe around the issues of suffering and some of the hard issues we walk through in life. Jesus came and died and stepped into it and suffered with us. So no matter the season, whether you're on the mountaintop or you're in the valley, we all need God. The Bible's for everyone, and there's no graduation into it. Prayer and, spi- prayer and spiritual desire is as important or more important than anything else, any scholarly tool. You go to the Bible with prayer, you go to the Bible with a desire to see God, and that's as useful as anything. Because, you know, we do sometimes look at stuff and think, I can't do that. I watch the NBA Finals. I'm five foot nine on a good day with shoes on. I can barely touch the net. In no planet am I preparing myself enough to where I can play basketball with the people playing in the NBA Finals. It's not going to happen. But I think sometimes we ch- say change the channel to Hillsong channel. We're watching a sermon. There's a pastor who's just breaking down the word of God and so much wisdom. And we think, man, could I ever get to that point? 
And it's true that some of these people are walking in a, a gifting of the Spirit for preaching and teaching, but that knowledge, that wisdom, that, that, that Scripture, they're reading the same Bible we are. They're just spending a lot of time in it. They don't have superpowers. They're just spending an extra lot of time in God's Word studying it. That same knowledge is available to us. That same wisdom is available to us. Again, some of those guys can preach and teach amazingly. It's a gift of the Spirit. But come on, we have the same Bible. Come on, we can read it, we can study it, but read with an expectation for application that no matter what reality is for you right now, God's word can speak to it. God's word is useful and true, and it makes us realize, come on, what we need in life. But read it with that expectation, but read it prayerfully. You can read it with a desire to hear from God. Read it thoughtfully, and don't get so caught up chasing the obscure that you miss the obvious. Again, that it's useful. It's, it's relevant to our present reality, and ultimately, it's about Jesus. Again, it's not about self-help. It's about finding our hope and help in Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, the second way we should apply this is we should find Jesus in every passage. I talk about reading with an expectation for application, but ultimately, above all else, the Bible is about the blood of Jesus Christ being applied to the world. The blood of Jesus Christ being applied to creation and every person within it. The author Dave Harvey once said, the gospel is the heart of the Bible. Everything in scripture is either preparation for the gospel, a presentation of the gospel, or participation in the gospel. So summed up, the Bible is about the good news of Jesus Christ. The Bible is about Jesus from one cover to the next. For instance, I can remember one of those pastors who has a gift for teaching and preaching. He broke down Numbers 20. Numbers 20 is where Moses is at Meribah. He's leading the Israelites through the desert. So earlier as they were going through the desert, they, they, they were thirsty. They were crying out, and, and God tells Moses, strike this rock, water will flow from it. And then later at Meribah, Numbers 20, similar situation, but God doesn't tell him to strike the rock. He says, speak to the rock, and water will flow from it. But Moses was leading a bunch of knuckleheads, so he gets frustrated. And in, in a, just a height of anger and frustration, he hits the rock rather than speaking to it. Now, God gets so frustrated with his disobedience that he says, you're never going to set foot in the promised land. And when I would read that, I would think, man, that is a harsh punishment for hitting a rock rather than speaking to it. But then you realize, man, all of Scripture, again, it's meant to point to Jesus. It's meant to be this prophetic picture. And as God commands people to do things, it's for a purpose. It's not for no purpose. And this rock that water flowed from to give the Israelites life, it's, it's symbolic of the rock that gives us living water. Jesus Christ, who was struck once, died once, suffered once, so that we could have life. He doesn't have to die again. We don't have to die. We don't have to suffer. We simply have to ask now that he's died and resurrected. That's the picture God was trying to paint. It even says in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. Speaking to the Israelites in the Old Testament, this rock was Christ. You think about the manna that came down from heaven to give them sustenance. That was a type of the bread of life, Jesus Christ, who would come to give us life. Man, the Bible, it points to Jesus. To read it any other way is to miss the point. Again, does it help us along? Does it speak to our present reality? Yes, but ultimately, above all else, it points to Jesus and the hope we have in him. And then thirdly, if it's an autobiography, if it's God revealing himself to us, then every time we open God's word, we should ask God, man, reveal yourself to me. Show something of, of you that I, I haven't yet seen. Like, help me to understand who you are. I want to know you, so reveal yourself to me, because 
tomorrow, I could see LeBron James walking through Chesapeake. I won't. He's in the middle of the finals. But if I did, I'd say hello. I know who he is. I'd recognize him. I don't know if I'd ask for a photo or tell him I hope he loses. I don't, I don't know what. But I know, I know of him. I know that he now has more triple doubles in the finals than any other player in history. Like, I know, I know LeBron James, but does he know me personally? No. Do I know him personally? No. And the thing is, he has no desire, let's be honest, he has no desire to know me personally. But what's crazy and the reality that should rock our world every day we wake up is that the creator of the universe not only wants to know us, but has made it available through his word. That he, he created us, he wants to know us, and he's made it possible through Jesus Christ and through his word. And he's given us the means to do it. You know, the Bible says powerfully, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 21, it says that God revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And he still operates that way with us. That's a, a fill-in-the-blank text, as we like to say here in City Life. God revealed himself to, put your name there, through his word. He still works in that way with us. And I don't want to try to pull too much from this phrase because God revealed himself in this specific verse through spoken revelation to Samuel, but come on, there's a principle for us. Samuel recorded it. We read about it today through the word of God. Let's be people who ask that for ourselves. Man, God, reveal yourself to me. Help me to know you better through your word. I know you speak through your word. I know you haven't distanced yourself from me, but I have the word of God to enter into to know you better. So let's ask. Ask, seek, knock, and we'll receive. If I could just have Levi come up, he's going to play the guitar and help us close. But in John 5, 39, again, we read it in the message version. Jesus says, here I am, standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the, the life you say you want. Again, that survey, those stats we opened with, would tell us that there's a whole lot of people that would say they, they want to honor God and God's standing right before them, but they haven't received him. It's like we've got the gift we're begging for in our lap, but it's still wrapped and we don't realize it. Come on, he says here, here I am right before you. You aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. So again, I, I love that the song we sang earlier said, I look to you, I won't be overwhelmed because I don't know what we're all looking at when we leave here tonight. I don't know what we're going home to, but if you're feeling broken down, if you're feeling like you're running on E or empty, let me remind you of the equation we get in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing the word of God. Faith comes through the word of God. It's our fuel. And I, I know maybe for some of you, God has stirred your faith tonight, but I, I also know for a fact that God can stir your faith tomorrow, the day after that, and any moment you pick up his word and speak Read it, pray it, speak it over your life. Because, man, if you're feeling empty, let me remind you, if you run out of gas on the way home tonight, <laughs> your car runs out of gas, you pull out the little uh, red container of fuel, you don't just put it by your car. You open it up, you put it in your car. And if you're feeling run down, you're feeling exhausted spiritually, man, don't just take the word of God in passing. Read it. Meditate on it. Let it stir you up. Pray it. Ask God, man, reveal yourself. Ask God, man, fill me. 
God, we desperately need you to fill us. Again, no matter what situation we're in, mountaintop or valley, high or low, the reality is we need you. All of us have sinned and fallen short. All of us have done that this week. God, we need grace like the air we breathe. God, we need your presence to fill us. And God, I just pray tonight that you would remind us that faith comes through your word. God, you would remind us that you've written us a 66-book love letter, profile of who you are. God, that we have the privilege of holding on to and reading. Again, David, he had the Torah, right? Jesus had the Old Testament. We've got, we have the Gospels. (laughs) We have the hope. God, I pray that we would never forget it, but we would live lives that enter into it. God, that understand its depth. And every new time we read a a passage, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth, God, that you would reveal us something new of who you are. God, because again, as we sing, man, you're our strength, you're our shield, you're our rock. Remind us tonight of who you are. God, remind us of the goodness of your word. God, that points to Jesus Christ, our, our one true hope. But God, tonight we want to close by praising him and praising you for all you've done for us. So if we could stand, Levi's just going to sing a a song and and lead us out, and then I'll come back and pray us out. But if we could just stand, praise and worship God in this moment.